I'm Ron Mars, writer of Artifacts and Witchblade and Magdalena and Shinku and other assorted odds and ends. And you're listening to Funny Books with Aaron and Pauly. Something about a NPR Area 51, right? You've got to listen to it. It's just insane. I mean, like, like, credible insane. Is it something online or is it something on the actual station? It's uh, you can go you can go to NPR.com. Uh, I put a link with it too, so uh, oh, nice. you can listen to the the author interviewed on Fresh Air. Uh, so <laughs> uh, I don't want to ruin it for you, but it's just. I mean, they're talking about Roswell stuff and and that it was actually a Soviet plot and that the occupants of the of the flying disc were like like thirteen year olds who had been genetically or surgically altered to look like aliens by the Soviets and Mengele was involved. I mean, it's just it's insane. Wow, you got Nazis in there, you got Soviets, you got yourself something going on there. I'm just sitting here with my mouth hanging open. This is nuts. <laughs> well, I'm downloading it I mean, now, so now I, my sound I, I, is going to sound awful. <laughs> I totally wish I could make this shit up. <laughs> now if they'll just talk a little bit about lost Nazi gold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he hasn't finished listening to it yet. Don't ruin the ending, Aaron. Damn maybe, it. Maybe Martin Borman will make an appearance. I'm hoping. <laughs> <laughs> so how you been? Uh, Good. Yeah. Too busy. Otherwise, not too bad. Good deal. Yeah, you, you've been pretty busy because, uh, you know, we're getting prepped for the interview. Like, okay, so what are we going to ask him about? And you've got like a billion books coming out. So we're good. we got enough shit to talk about. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I haven't left the house since last time I talked to you guys, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I figured we could always talk about Game of Thrones if we came up short on anything, so. Oh, yeah. Well, you I'm could. Bigger. I've only seen the first episode. I'm behind. You're behind. So is Cal Drogo. <laughs> See, I don't even get the reference. <laughs> nice. Now, which banner is Shinku coming out under? Is it? It's under Image or Top Cow or? Yeah, it's under it's under the regular Image banner. Okay. Um, since Top Cow is, you know, is really an imprint under Image, and um, they don't do uh, they do some creator own stuff, and I've actually done creator own stuff there. But this was a, you know, completely creator-owned joint from the from the ground up. And so uh, I read the I read the back of the book comments about how things came to be. You've had this uh, rolling around your head for a little while. Yeah, about ten years, I would think, maybe even a little bit longer, um, and just kind of in bits and pieces, because it seemed like, uh, uh, you know, it seemed like a story that that I would get to at some point, but the right people weren't really in place and the right timing wasn't in place so you know once we got everybody that that's on the book now to sign up it went went forward pretty quickly 
So how long did it take you to get – I mean you know, once you kind of decided, okay, now's the right time, did you have the people at that time or did you decide to go out and get the people once you decided that you know, I'd rather do it now than later? Well, it was really just me and Lee initially. Mm-hmm. Um, we and did the first – That's Lee Motor, right? The, the artist? Yeah. 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 Uh, we did the first nine or ten pages I think and produced a little uh, you know, black and white and red – ash can basically that I just had printed at a place down the road from my house just to, just to have it done, just to, uh, kind of show it around and, you know, hawk a few copies of conventions. And the first convention I showed up to was, uh, Baltimore con in Oh nine, maybe I think. Uh, and so I had, I had a stack of them with me there and, one of them made its way into Eric Stevenson's hands, uh, who is the publisher at Image, and he came over. I mean, literally a couple hours into the show, and said, "We, you know, we'd like to do this." Uh, and then it was a matter of, you know, going back and forth and and talking to Eric about the the specifics of the publishing deal, and uh, and Eric was actually the one that suggested we do it as a full color book, um, and we do it as a monthly rather than a miniseries. So um, with that input, I kind of had to get a little bit more serious about finding a colorist and and uh, you know getting a schedule set up that would allow us to uh, to do this book on a if not monthly basis at least you know allow us to do uh, story arcs monthly and then take a few months off and then come back with the with the next arc and just keep the numbering going. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, this is, you've done some creator-owned stuff before, uh, Samurai, for example. And, you know, you talked a little bit about this in your Shelf Life column on uh, CBR that, you know, but every one of our listeners is so dedicated to our website that they don't check other websites. I'm sure. (laughs) So, um, you know, talk a little, I mean, so you you got the artist, but let's talk a little bit about that creator-owned process, right? Yeah. what the upfront work that goes into putting something together like this, you know, what, what, I mean, did you have to seek out, I mean, you said, you know, you had to get serious about finding a colorist and things like that. So do you have to seek everybody out? I mean, is it kind of a, a group effort that everyone works together or are you kind oh, yeah, of it's, like, it's, it's, um, you know, I, I suppose everybody's creator own book comes together differently, but in this case, you know, I've been doing this long enough and I have enough friends in the business that you generally tend to work with your friends anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so when, you know, when an opportunity like this comes up, you know, I've got no shortage of, of names I can, I can call or email to say, hey, do you want to be a part of this? Uh, that said, it's always, um, you know, it, it, doing a creator-owned book in most cases means you're working for free. Uh, it mm-hmm. means you're you're doing, you know, you're doing the job, but nobody's sending you a check, uh, right. which can be problematic from the whole eating and paying the rent standpoint. Uh, so, you know, that's why, you know, the fact of the matter is most guys who are, who are trying to make a living in this business are doing work for hire for Marvel or DC or Top Gow or whoever, you know, Dark Horse, whoever the, you know, who's ever putting the, the paying gigs out there, uh, Ultimately, it's doing a creator-owned book is creatively the most satisfying thing you can do. Financially, it's it's like you know playing the roulette wheel. You just kind of do the thing, and you hope that somewhere, somehow, it pays off. Either through 
you know, the sales of the book, uh, and at Image, the you know, the after Image takes its fees for uh, for the you know the printing and their production and and all of the costs they have, uh, and they take a flat fee per issue for that. Uh, beyond that, any money that is generated, any profits that are generated, come back to the creative team to split up however we see fit. Um, so, you know, you're starting this you're starting this uh, this process months and months ahead of time before. You even know what the sales numbers are going to be like before the book is solicited. So you're really working blind. You're working um, very much toward toward a goal that, at least financially, you have no idea what it is. You know, you could, you know, you could sell 1,500 copies and lose your shirt, or you could, you know, sell 20,000 copies and you know everybody's dancing in the streets. Um, the reality is usually somewhere between those two things. Um, but that's that's the big that's the big risk and and it's frankly more of a risk for artists than it is writers because um you know because the i as the writer can you know do a script in four or five days a week or whatever and the other three weeks of the month i can do a you know work for hire stuff that's that's paying the bills uh for the artist particularly the penciler uh he's really the one with his ass on the line because you know it depends on you do one job a month for the most part you might be able to work in little side gigs here and there but uh you're pretty much full time on one project and if your one project is creator owned that means you're not getting paid for six or eight months at a time uh, or six or eight months before the the check for that first issue rolls in uh so it's it's really a leap of faith because you might be working on something for six or eight months and find out, oh yeah, we didn't make any money on that. Uh, it's just the the economic reality of of doing your own book, um, you know. And and obviously there are huge creator-owned success stories like uh, you know the stuff that Mark Millar's doing, the stuff that Kirkman's doing. Uh, you know, Mouse Guard is obviously a big success. Uh, but for every one of those, there's you know, 20 creator-owned books that come out and nobody even notices it. So it's it's creatively hugely satisfying. You just don't know, you know, you're taking a leap of faith. And now, is there an additional concern? You know, it's creator-owned, and you explained, you know, you're you're really working for yourself, and you you may or may not get paid on the other side of it. Is it more of a concern with a mature audience read such as Shinku? Oh, sure. Yeah, that was a dumbass thing. Uh, <laughs> but that was the way we wanted to tell the story. That was the way the story wanted to be told, really. Well, and, and I have to say, it's it's rather unapologetically dark, and I love that about the about the story. You know, it's it it really does play to the horror of of the universe that you're building there. Well, you know, the idea was that if we were going to do a horror story, let's do a horror story. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I grew up in the you know in the dark ages when vampires weren't you know sparkly and cuddly <laughs> they're actually the bad guys yeah um you know i grew up with bella lugosi and christopher lee as my role models right um so you know it's not like shinku was a reaction to twilight at all because the story actually existed before i knew what the hell twilight was but it, this is just what this is the kind of vampire story that I wanted to tell, um, 
where the vampires were were the bad guys, and maybe they were um, alluring or attractive in some way. Uh, you know, and I don't mean just physically. I mean there's a they're compelling, even though they're the bad guys. Um, but I very much wanted them to be the bad guys. Uh-huh. Uh, so we talked about it, and to me, the logical choice was, well, let's you know, let's do a horror story. Let's do uh, vampires being about, you know, sex and violence, which is, to me, what, what they've always been about. Uh, and we didn't want to, we didn't want to soft pedal it. So we figured, well, it's our book. Let's do what the hell we want, at least. <laughs> you know, if, if nothing else, at the end of the day, we'll have the book that we want. So uh, Shinku is a story of samurais, vampires, and modern-day Tokyo. Yes. Is that, is that correct? Um, yes, you must have read that off the back cover copy. <laughs> <laughs> um, what else do you want our listeners to know about Shinku, other than that they should go buy several Other copies? than that they should go, like, you know, buy a dozen. Exactly. Um, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of it. I love the way the book came together, and it really is kind of, you know, it wasn't like we went into this with a plan that, okay, this is exactly what we're going to do. As each member of the team came along, uh, it kind of organically grew into the kind of book that it is. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the color palette certainly wouldn't be what it is without Mike Atiyah on the team uh, as the colorist because he came in and said, I want to do this kind of marker, watercolor kind of look, which frankly takes him twice as long to do. Mm-hmm. It's got a uh, brilliant that, look to it. I mean, it is, there's such an atmosphere to the book. Well, it's it's really you know all it's that that all comes from Mike, and, and frankly, you know, Mike has has been a buddy of mine for more than a decade, um, and I really asked him onto the book as a courtesy more than anything else because I didn't want him to feel like, well, you know, once we announced the book. I didn't want him to feel like, well, what that asshole, you know, he didn't invite me, <laughs> jerk. I thought I thought we were friends. So I really, you know, was out of courtesy more than anything else. So Mike could say, no, I'm too busy. Leave me alone. Um, but he said yes in about 30 seconds. And I went, oh, shit, really? Uh, and then, you know, he's been he's been a rock in terms of, you know, squeezing it in, in and around his other work. Mm-hmm. Uh which he does a lot of stuff for for Dark Horse, a lot of stuff for DC. Um, and he was the one that came to the table and said, you know, I want to do the book in this style. And, you know, it it takes him longer to do it in this style. But there's also, you know, unlike a, a work-for-hire gig, there's also nobody to tell him no. Right. You know, as long as the rest of us said, yeah, that's cool, do it. There's there's nobody in place that says, well, this, you know, this doesn't look like the other books we publish, so you better not do that. Well, I mean, very much the the passions on the page, I, you know, I, 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 you really can see it, you know, in the in the the pencils and in, in the inks and, and in the coloring. It's just just a, a lovely book, you know. Well, thanks. I, you know featuring all I, of it. I am, I am more than happy to take all the credit for the artistic brilliance of it. <laughs> and none of those guys are on with us. You, you mentioned that originally it was planned as a mini. Now we're talking ongoing series of arcs. Uh, with you know maybe breaks in between to to get caught up, how far out are you guys already on the on the book? We are so issue one comes out in June. We're we're a good chunk of the way through issue three. Issue two is in the can already. 
Um, so we should be able to get the first five out uh, on schedule, and then we'll you know catch our breath for a few months. Uh, hopefully, put out a put out a collection if the if the interest is there, and then jump right back in with another with another batch. Well, I'll say uh, Image lately has been. I mean, they've had a pretty good run with uh, their new creator-owned stuff. The, not just sales-wise. I mean, they've they've had a, a ton of sellouts. Some books like, of course, Chew, which I guess is a couple years old at this point. Uh, you know, Blue Estate, Green Wake. I mean, they've had a ton of stuff that they're really kind of you know putting a lot of support behind, and they seem to be doing similar with Shinku. You know, that they they well, really seem to you know. be promoting it and. Let's yeah, hope uh, they've been great about about you know kind of uh, beating the drum for Shinku as well as uh, as well as their other books. Um, you know it's it's an interesting it's an interesting setup because obviously Image as a company isn't invested in one book more than any other. They don't own anything. They don't they don't ultimately make any more money off of a book that sells you know, 50,000 copies a month as compared to a book that sells, you know, 3,000 copies a month because they, they get their fee off the top. Um, so ultimately, you know, all the, all the children sort of get loved the same. Now, obviously, things like, you know, Walking Dead and Chew and all that get, uh, as they have grown in popularity uh, and grown in buzz, they, you know, they tend to get... Um, more people looking at it and that it's just kind of a boulder that ends up picking up speed as it goes downhill. But uh, the thing that, uh, the thing that's been really gratifying about this, this current crop of image books in the last six months or so, it's a lot of really good stuff, but it's a lot of really different stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's nobody has come out and, you know, said, Oh, well, here's, you know, here's my chew or here's my walking dead. Nobody's really, uh, uh, you know, nobody's really trying to ape the success of anybody else. That's that's the beauty of doing creator own books, which is you do what you want. Uh, you, you you tell the story that you're passionate about telling, not the one that you know you think might sell the best. Uh, or at least you know we were dumb enough to go into it with that <laughs> with that idea. Um, you know, and it's it's a slow. It's a slow curve, but I think little by little, the reading public and the retailers are embracing not just image books, but books from other publishers too, that aren't the same old tried and true stuff. Yeah. And, you know, look, we all grew up on superheroes. We, you know, we all love that stuff. I still buy it mostly in trades these days because I don't get the time to go out to the store and, you know, get single issues. But, you know that's was everybody's gateway drug for for comics for the most part um, but I think the market and especially the readership are starting to look in other directions at least you know God willing I hope so uh, because we as an industry can't just you know we can't just publish fifteen Batman books and and a half dozen Thor titles every month. Um, that stuff is great, but you know it's kind of like eating it. Uh, and I've, I've used this analogy before. I mean, it's kind of like eating at McDonald's and Burger King for every meal. Uh, it might taste good, but it's not the healthiest alternative you can think of for the long term. So, uh, vampires in your world—you know—you've established that they're the bad guys, that they're monsters. I just want to—you want to—you know—set the set the stage. 
vampires uh, can't go out in the sun? Right. Okay. We, we see in Shinku that you can kill a vampire by cutting off their head. Do they vaporize after they've uh, been killed? I, apparently it's going to cost you three bucks to find out. <laughs> Stake through the heart? Uh, or sword through the neck, yeah. Okay. Crosses? Um, gee, we didn't really get into that very much. Um, not a not a lot of Christians in feudal Japan. True, so. true. Nobody really gives a shit about that. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that that particular uh, gag probably won't come into play very much because we're not really dealing with a, a Christianity-based mythology, at least in the flashback stuff that we do that's in feudal Japan. Right. Um, so, you know, we will pay... I can tell you this, we will pay some... Uh, pay some uh, uh, homage to that whole concept and how it actually works out might not be quite what the readers expect. Okay. Garlic. Mostly on pasta. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you've got some uh, prior experience writing in the, uh, you know, feudal Japanese type of setting. Um, how did you come to that? Did it, is that, is that culture something you've always had an interest in? Have you visited Japan? You know, how, how did you come to that? Uh, I've never visited Japan, but if somebody wants to indict me, I'm more than willing. Uh, more than anything, it's just I, I've always kind of been interested in the the culture, particularly the samurai culture, mm-hmm. and I think that comes from just the the spectacular visual quality sure. of of samurai in their armor, and um, I think I'm I'm visually driven both in terms of of um, what I read as well as what I write. Uh, so the fact that that's so appealing to me visually is, is what led me to explore more of it in terms of, uh, in terms of using it as story material. Um, so, you know, plus I, you know, I've said this before too, you know, guys with swords is just cool. <laughs> this is true. That this whole guys with swords thing. That's cool. So, uh, you know, you kind of get the best of both worlds with with the samurai. Plus, it's you know, it's it has an exotic quality to it that um, I think maybe ten years ago was a little bit more unique. Now, you know, now you see a lot of samurai uh, comics, even and and uh, more and more Western stuff actually has some sort of samurai component to it. Right. Uh, but you know, when I was in college, we we did Kurosawa films and film class and all that, so that was really uh, some of my first exposure to it. Along the lines of people with swords, you know, there's always the witchblade. Wow, that was a that was a did you, did you have that one like? <laughs> the last five questions have been building to that one. Just so you know, I I, I, I appreciate it. We'll, we'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> you have writing, I have segues. I, I <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really want to express my appreciation for uh, Witchblade 144. You know, it's kind of a, a retelling of the Witchblade origin. And since I'm kind of fresh back to Witchblade, I, I really appreciated that. I liked the retelling of that origin. Thanks. It, you know, it seemed like after 15 years, maybe we should touch on some of that stuff again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I didn't want to just... You know, I didn't want to just trot out 
you know, basically, you know, the, the comic book version of a clip show. To me, that would, you know, that's that's what you do when you don't have any other ideas. So I wanted to I wanted to retell the origin, but I wanted to do it from a, another perspective that allowed us to see and be part of to have the story be part of a lot of the pivotal scenes that are an aspect of of Sarah's origin, or at least Sarah's origin of getting the Witchblade, but not just repeat ourselves. So hopefully the the uh, the device we used to do that uh, adds some interest to the story. Um, we wanted it to work for people who have never read the origin, and we wanted it to work for people who have been reading the book for 15 years and are, you know, completely versed in the origin. Well, I, I got a I got a big kick out of it, and I got to tell you, I know this is the we interview the writer and talk about the artist, but you know, Stepan Sayix Sayix Sayix. I hope I'm getting that right. His he's on fire in this book. Yeah, he uh, he ain't, he ain't half bad. We'll keep him around. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Maybe we'll even have him do a Shinku cover. Ooh. Um, he said with ponderous uh, <laughs> foreshadowing. Um, this is one of the f- this is one of the first issues that uh, Stepan came back on the book for that he really was kind of at at full strength again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Last for, time we talked, you'd said that he'd been ill. Yeah, for a good part of last year, he he had been uh, doing two monthly books, uh, Witchblade and Angelus, uh, was also on the side working on his own uh, creator-owned uh, fantasy project called Ravine, mm-hmm. which uh, I might or might not be involved in, <laughs> he said with ponderous foreshadowing again. Um <laughs> And uh, and on top of all that, uh, discovered he had a, a thyroid condition uh, that that he had to you know go get treatment for, and ended up in the hospital for a little while. Uh, had to get medication for it. The medication was not at the right dosage, so he had to go get the dosage adjusted. I mean, it was a whole you know it was a whole series of events that uh, included real life imposing itself on this fantasy world that we that we generally work in every day uh so he got through all of that and is and is hale and hearty again uh and witchblade 144 which has been in the can for quite a while uh finished was one of the first issues that he he uh, tackled with uh with full concentration and full health and everything and i, I think it it really shows in the work yeah, it's 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 an awfully pretty book. Well, and, and I've got to say the uh, the two parter that um, when artifacts first started, there was a two parter with uh, children who uh, I think it was a two parter. The the yeah. children, their imaginary creatures would come to life. That was a gorgeous oh, yeah, yeah, two parter yeah. too. And I know, I know that was a couple months ago, but um, that was yeah, that was when he was kind of getting back, kind of getting back to himself, um, uh, and that was an idea that actually came uh, something I mentioned and he, then he kicked around uh, more of the the idea specifics for that story um, and we actually got to put my kids drawings into the issue so that was kind of cool oh those were your kids drawings in that book yeah most of the drawings in those two issues were actually by my kids uh, and also some by the uh, two sons of uh, Matt Hawkins, who was the top cow uh, chief 
besides uh, besides Mark Silvestri. So so Matt's boys actually got their stuff in there too, which to me lent besides just you know having our kids in the book lent a an air of authenticity in mm-hmm. in the uh, in those visuals. Although you know both of my kids, actually all three of my kids, but both of my younger kids who who have uh, drawings in those issues draw like really well. Oh, really? They obviously didn't get it. They obviously didn't get it from me because I can't draw for shit. <laughs> um, my wife is actually much better uh, artistically than I am. Um, so my kids really draw quite well. So they, when I said, "Do you guys want to do this?" and they sat down and designed some monsters and they brought me the drawings and you know they were actually pretty damn good. And yeah. I was like, "Well, no, you have to do some that look like little kids designed them, and so they should suck." <laughs> so we, you know, I sent them back to their room so they could like do some more and have them not be like, you know, I said, look, the anatomy is all, you know, like in proportion, everything. Can't you go screw that up or something? Was that issues 142 and 143? No, 142 and 143, I think, uh, was the two-parter that had, um, oh God, what's the guy's name? Sarah's partner. Uh, Gleason, and they were drawn by uh, Matthew Dowsmith. Okay. Yes, thank you. Um, and that was a, uh, and that that actually leads me to my next question. You know, that I, I enjoyed that two parter too, and it was cool seeing the different art style. It was a very different art style than obviously Stepan brings to the title. Um, so, how did you get, you know, how did you decide to to do a Gleason two parter and bring in a different artist, and what brought you to that artist specifically? And Matt lives about twenty minutes away from me, so I, you know, yeah. he'd give me the stink eye if I didn't offer him the, the work. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I mean Matt. Matt Smith is a guy that uh, whose work I've always really uh, loved from you know the early stuff that he did with uh, Lobster Johnson on some of the Hellboy material. Uh, he did Starman issues, uh, Sandman Mystery Theater issues, and then he actually took over uh, the second year of the path at CrossGen uh, to 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 bring the samurai theme full circle um he, matt took over the second year of the path when when bart sears left the book to concentrate more on uh being the art director there uh so matt and i've known each other for you know probably 10 years or, or so um so we were both down in florida at CrossGen, and when that all blew apart uh separately because uh, i don't want you to think that you know, Matt and I are a couple or anything. Uh, <laughs> my, my wife and his fiance might get a little twitchy about that. Um, Matt and I ended up moving, both ended up moving back to New York State, uh, unbeknownst to each other uh, at separate times. And Matt is, you know, literally lives about 20 minutes away from me. So, um, so we see each other fairly often and had been looking for an opportunity slash excuse to work with each other. But our schedules just hasn't hadn't matched up uh, up until this point, and then Matt got a break in his uh, Doctor Who stuff, which he does for IDW because he's a huge Doctor Who nerd, <laughs> and um, you know, so we we slipped those two issues into his schedule, and I'm I'm just really really happy with the way they came out. Um, Matt stuff is great. Uh, the colors by uh, Nathan Fairburn are just spectacular, and, and they're they're just right on that stuff. Um, and, and 
because Matt was going to do those issues so that we could jump escape on ahead and get ourselves a little bit more back on schedule. Um, I felt like because what Matt does and what Japon does are so different, uh, both in terms of, of, uh, you know, the, 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 the dark quality that the chiaroscuro quality that, that Matt stuff has, uh, compared to the more painterly stuff that Japon does. I really wanted the two issues that Matt drew to be something different than what we normally do in the book. Uh, and I have been wanting to tell a Gleason story at some point to kind of flesh his character out more. Um, so it just seemed like the right opportunity to pull him out of the book or out of Sarah's world and tell a story about him since we were going to have this different art style anyway. Um, and actually Matt and I, you know, went out to dinner and actually ended up with a completely different story than I was planning on in the first place. So, you know, somewhere over the third or fourth beer and the, and the entree, we ended up with the story that we told. How does it, how difficult do you find it to write the, I mean, the last three issues of Witchblade have been relatively light on featuring Sarah Pizzini. And so do you find that, is that intentional because of what's going on in artifacts? So as not to contradict or, you know, risk, uh, you know, continuity issues or whatever, or anything like that with artifacts or, you know, is it just kind of a, a matter of right place, right time with the stories? No, it's really just how it worked out. I mean, I, you know, I frankly don't really give a shit about the continuity stuff. I mean, I'm not <laughs> overly, you know, somebody would be burning me in effigy because of that. But, um, you know, come on, they're all just made up stories. It's not real. So if they don't quite match up, you know, in terms of what Sarah was doing the third week of September 2010, you know, who gives a shit? Uh, you know, I don't intentionally do anything that, that puts the lie to uh, any story that we're telling or any story that's come in the past, mm-hmm. but I'm not concerned about, you know, every I being dotted and every T being crossed in continuity, because to me, then you're, you're not, you're not so much writing stories, you're writing checklists. Um, so, you know, it, it worked out that we had the Gleason story, uh, in a position to go and then, um, the the anniversary issue, which will be out, or uh, when are we doing this, and when will this run? I'm confused. It's like the space-time continuum has swallowed us. Um, <laughs> 140. I'm sure 144 will be out by the time anybody, any human ears hear this. Uh, That's correct. 144 actually comes out uh, tomorrow by the time we're recording this, so it's been out for about two weeks. So run out to your store and buy it. Right, and I think with 144 you get an actual, uh, you, you get a digital download for free with it because that's the way you're going to buy your comics from five years in, in five years. <laughs> get, um, get used to it, um, and you know, so so we had this uh, this anniversary issue planned, which was going to, uh, you know, obviously it features Sarah, but it doesn't feature Sarah in the here and now for the most part. It's it's all flashback stuff. Um, more than anything, it was just coincidence. It wasn't a, a sense of well, let's, you know, let's get Sarah off stage because of what's going on in Artifacts. Um, you know, if Artifacts was three issues, I might have been a little bit more concerned about it. But Artifacts is 13 issues. It's going to be, uh, it's going to take more than a year, obviously, to tell that whole story. And I, I wanted to make sure that we weren't going to just be, uh, you know, doing a dog and pony show in Witchblade without Sarah. 
while Artifact was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I felt like we had to address some some of the things that happened uh, in Artifacts early on, uh, just so that we weren't telling two completely different stories. But after that, I wanted to you know just kind of go go on with the kind of stories that we generally tell in Witchblade. Now, one of my favorite uh, incarnations of Witchblade is the Soviet-era Witchblade, and I just completely dug uh, Annual Number 2 that featured her so prominently. Uh, any other plans for her? Am I supposed to say or not? Uh, <laughs> yes, you're supposed to say. Um, I would love to do more with her, and I we've kicked around a couple of story ideas that actually involve her and some of the other past bearers. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing written in stone right now, but I would like to, uh, I'd like to get back to her story at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that's one of the real strengths of any of the any of the top cow monthlies, really. Witchblade, Darkness, Magdalena, uh, Angelus, to a certain extent, is that these are cyclical slash generational kind of. Uh, kind of stories. So there's been a witchblade bearer, you know, back to the to the dawn of man, and the same thing with with uh, the darkness. Um, there has been a Magdalena in place for the last thousand years or so, um, and you know, I'm kind of a history nerd anyway. So any chance I can get to go back and you know tell a story set in 1750 or 1944 or the middle of the Crusades, or whatever uh, whatever we've got coming up, I'm, I'm all for it. Uh, and I think it allows us to, to make the franchises a little bit more well-rounded than if we were just dealing with the current, uh, the current bearers, the current characters. Mm-hmm. Um, Witchblade 140, uh, let me see, 146, which is the start of a four-part arc, actually half of it takes place in ancient Egypt with the Witchblade Bearer of that era. Well, I guess I was reading uh, one of the Witchblade trade paperbacks, which is where I had seen the, the, the first my first glimpse of Soviet-era Witchblade, and I'd made a comment on Twitter and goes, well, you know, you, you had said, well, you know, she's in uh, annual number two, and I mean, I, I immediately ran out of the house and went and bought that. Cool. I hadn't seen Man, it, so I mean, that, that's, that's the so power. You're so gullible. <laughs> Power of Twitter, my friend. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, the, some of those um, some of those pages uh, that are you know now in trade. Though, I guess they were initially issue ninety two. Uh, we did a lot of past bearers, most of them with two page uh, two page sequence, and the the two pages uh, that featured this Soviet bearer in Stalingrad were actually drawn by uh, Darwin Cook. So those are a couple of my favorite Witchblade pages ever, frankly. Um, and, and I'm told that uh, my friend Terry Austin bought the originals off of eBay, so um, I can go over to his house and you know, like hold them every once in a while. <laughs> You've got artifacts right now. Is um, I guess it's right deep in the middle of its second act because issue seven yeah. was just recently released. We've got issue eight coming out in probably in about a month time frame, roughly. Yeah, probably about three weeks by the time we. Um, uh, I think Wills is actually just, I mean, literally putting the last last lines on the last page of uh, of issue eight right now. And uh, you've got Jeremy Hahn with issue starting with issue ten, issue nine, issue nine. Uh, Wills is, Wills finishes up on eight. Uh, 
Jeremy's already done with issue nine, and he's running issue ten right now. Fantastic. Now, is Jeremy Han going to see you through uh, thirteen, or do you have a a different plan for issue thirteen? We have a different plan for issue thirteen. Ah, saving it for USA Today. Damn it. <laughs> I don't know. Are we? I, you know, I, I know who's drawing issue thirteen. I know we haven't announced it, but I know who. No, not yet. It. I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm sure it was announced. Uh, you can go ahead and spill oh, the beans on the show. <laughs> not quite quick enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, have you written all the way through issue thirteen at this point? <laughs> no, I wish. I mean, of course, <laughs> absolutely, I have. It's like lost. Uh, you no, don't know I, the I, ending I, yet. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I've known the ending uh, for a couple of years, actually. Uh, I've known, actually, I've known the ending, and this is the God's honest truth. I've known the ending and kind of the the spine of the story uh, for more than two years, and the ending of it actually occurred to me as I was sitting in the movie in a movie theater uh, with my wife waiting for a movie to start. I don't even remember what the movie was, but. Um, the ending occurred to me just, you know, that's when, that's when ideas actually occur to you is when you're not trying to think of them. Um, so the ending occurred to me and I, and I got like actually choked up about what the ending is going to be because it's fairly emotional stuff. Um, and I think, uh, hopefully that's the reaction that, that the readers are going to have. And so, you know, I'm sitting there before the movie even starts and, you know, getting choked up and I'm obviously upset about something and my wife looks over and she's like, what the hell's wrong with you? Um, and, you know, you sound like a dork if you say, well, I just, you know, thought of the ending of my story. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I know, I know very specifically what, what we're going to do at the end. Uh, so what was your answer to her? Was it, I was just thinking of the day we married. I was thinking of the, the birth of our child. How did you spin that, Ron? I said, I wish people would leave Brittany alone. (laughs) (laughs) So in addition to artifacts, going to, I guess, completely the opposite end of the spectrum, it was just announced in solicitations. Well, it was announced previously, but it came out in solicitations today um, that in August you've got uh, a Green Lantern one-shot coming out from DC Comics as part of their big retroactive – they're a retroactive event, I guess. So, you know, they've got 90s and I think 70s, 80s, and 90s one-shots for all of their major characters. So you've got, like, uh, John Bogdanov doing a Superman book, Norm Brayfogle on a Batman book, uh, guys like that. And I think Alan Grant is the writer on Batman. And you and Daryl Banks are working on Green Lantern for the 90s. Yes, all correct. So is this a new story? Is this something that was kind of is it's because it says a lost story, but I, I I'm sure there's quotation marks around lost story. Yeah, um, actually, you know, maybe we'll maybe we'll um, maybe we'll uh, portray it as a lost story that actually gives you an ending. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, of the satisfying variety. Um, now I'm just being catty. That's not nice. I mean, <laughs> really what I wanted to do was invest six years of my life into something that was completely unsatisfying at the end. Um, the, the lost story aspect of it means that it just will, would fit somewhere in the run that Daryl and I did on Green Lantern. Um, 
and I've already been asked on Twitter, you know, what, you know, between which issues does does your story fit? I don't know, <laughs> and, I, and I don't even care. Uh, you know, I I felt like my job here was to uh, tell an entertaining Greenland story. You know, period. Right. From that era, uh, I, I'm not at all concerned about you know where it fits in the continuity and you know what issues it comes between or you know if it's you know if it's between the you know the third and fourth panels of page 15 of green lantern 119 none of that stuff is uh, you know that's not why i tell stories in the first place um so i went into it with the with the mindset that i just wanted to tell a good story that that people who uh, who had been reading Green Lantern at that point would look back uh, and enjoy, and maybe somebody who wasn't attuned to Green Lantern or wasn't even reading comics at the time would kind of get a sense of of what we were doing on the book in that in that era. Uh, and, and plus, uh, you know, frankly, a, a, a huge attraction of it for me was to was to be able to work with Dow Banks again. So, how many uh, pages is your story? Uh, Twenty six. Uh, 26 action-packed pages, as they say. Awesome, nice big and uh, chunky story. Uh, plus, there's a there's going to be a, a reprint of one of uh, one of my GL issues uh, to make it a uh, a 48 page package, uh, or however many 56 pages, whatever the, the total page count is. Um, but. Um, and I'm not even sure which one they're going to reprint it, but uh, you know, the idea is to just go back and do do a story that 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 fits in with with the kind of stories we were doing. And uh, it's funny. I bet you the the questions around what issues would have fit in between are be, are probably in the, uh, because of the solicitations. Because some of them actually do say, like the the Alan Grant, Norm Brayfogle Batman actually says, "Spinning out of the events of Detective Comics number six hundred and thirteen." Um, so I, I bet you that's probably why you're getting some of those questions. You know, I'm sure it is. And, and, you know, frankly, I would no more presume to tell Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle what to do with their issues than, than I would want them to tell me what to do with mine. Sure. Um, that said, however, that was when I go on my rant. Hmm. Um, you know, I just, I think if you do that kind of story, at least my feeling was that I didn't want to do a story that specifically hinged on other stories that were 10 years old. Uh, to me, that didn't serve any purpose beyond nostalgia. Um, and it, it cuts off a large part of the reading audience. If they, you know, from enjoying the story, if they haven't read whatever issue it's based on, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you guys, know that I'm a huge proponent of comics being accessible and understandable to anybody, not just people who have been reading the damn things for 10 years. Right. Um, so I, despite the fact that this is a, a retro uh, one shot that is, is dependent upon, you know, nostalgia of, of, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, that's still the mindset that I went into the story with is to make sure that if you had never read a Green Lantern comic in your life, that you would get at least the the framework to be able to understand what's going on and know who's who and and you know why these characters are beating the hell out of each other. 
So how'd you feel, or you know, what what went through your mind when I'm assuming DC contacted you to tell you, or to ask you if you'd be interested in writing a, a Kyle Rayner story again? Um, sure. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's a it was a two edged sword, really, um, <laughs> because and I'm my um, my column on CBR, which I know none of your listeners actually go to because they only <laughs> go to your site. Um, the the week that we're actually recording this, so go to CBR and look in the archives. Um, it's going to be about kind of that experience of revisiting your past, uh, which on the one hand is great. I mean, it's great to to pick up these toys and play with them again and and to be able to um, to be able to collaborate with Daryl Banks again, you know, it's all wonderful. On the other hand, you know, I think everybody uh, who does this for a living, or, who, or who does any sort of artistic venture for a living, is is somewhat concerned about becoming a greatest hits act. Um, and I, I liken this to. Um, you know, going to see, uh, you know, Journey or Def Leppard, who obviously were a big deal, you know, 20 or 25 years ago. That's when they were at the height of their popularity. Um, and if you go see them now, well, they're they're basically a greatest hits act now. Nobody's coming to see their their new stuff. Everybody wants, to, hey, do that thing that you did 20 years ago that I like. And that's a hard that's a hard thing to that's a hard line to walk. It's a hard thing to balance in your mind creatively because uh, you you don't want to just be the greatest hits act, you know, trotting, trotting yourself out on stage every night and, you know, bashing your way through don't stop believing because that's what the people are, who have shown up and paid the money want to see. Uh, you know, they don't really give a shit about the song you wrote last week. Nobody's interested. Uh, and and that's kind of a that's kind of a tragedy, uh, and I think any any creative uh, artist goes through that in some way because obviously there's a there's a shelf life to your career to your uh, to your audience, and you hope that the audience grows and changes with you, but there's always going to be uh, you know there's always going to be people who just want what they liked. 10 years ago. Um, I obviously not everybody that read Green Lantern 10 years ago when Daryl and I were doing it is, is going to read Shinku or is reading Witchblade or Magdalena right now. That's just the nature of, uh, of how this works. So I'm enjoying the hell out of working on Green Lantern again. I'm glad, however, that that's not the only thing that I'm doing. So I can see that. More, I, that was probably a more serious answer than you guys were looking for. But it's certainly something that I had to sit here and and contemplate uh, when when the opportunity came up. So when you when you settled in to to write Kyle again, was it was did you have any challenges finding his voice again? Did you have to go back and read any of your of your old stuff to to find him? Oh Christ, I wouldn't go back and read my own stuff. <laughs> I don't uh, I don't have enough time to read as it is. So I'm sure sure as hell not going to sit down and read something I wrote. Uh, I got a I got a stack of books here by other people I want to read. Um, 
No, I mean, I I paid through some, some old stuff that was sitting in a long box in the basement mm-hmm. that I haven't looked at in years uh, just to just to kind of get Daryl stuff uh, and his storytelling back in my head mm-hmm. before I sat down to write it. Um, but in terms of, you know, finding Kyle's voice and, and it was kind of slipping into that groove again. I, there, there weren't any, any issues really. Um, you know, and, and I think that's probably because Daryl and I, uh, actually Daryl even longer than I did worked on Kyle for about seven years, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a, you know, that's a huge chunk, not, of, not just of my career, but of my life. Uh, and even though obviously Kyle is, is trademark and copyright DC comics, he's not mine. He's not Daryl's. Uh, I think we're always going to have a, uh, an attachment to him as a character because we, you know, we built him from the ground floor up. Sure. Um, he's, uh, he's not, like I said, he's not ours, but, um, you know, we kind of feel like we, we raised him to a certain extent. Mm Mm-hmm and ultimately surrendered him into other hands when it was time to move on. But you still have that attachment, which is probably not a, a terribly, uh, terribly reasonable thing to do because it's, you know, again, it's, it's not yours. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's, it's hard to, uh, it, it's hard to think of Kyle in the same terms as, you know, firestorm or uh mr terrific as as just another character because we were we were involved in in putting him together and and making him what he is so you know you said something there that that caught my attention about you know having to go back and kind of uh re-examine daryl's storytelling and you know uh you know seeing how you're going to write for your artist how do you when when you're picking up a new artist for your book how do you prepare for that is it an interview process with with the artist? Are you going back and, and looking at what they've done before? How do you practice? Yeah, it's mostly you know it's mostly looking at uh, looking at their stuff and seeing uh, you know seeing how they approach the page, seeing what their their storytelling is like, seeing what their you know their mindset is like, and and to me a big part of the writer's job is to write to the strengths of your artist, mm-hmm. or or at the very least write away from their weaknesses. <laughs> um, you know, and and most of the time when I when I work with somebody that I haven't worked with before, um, we either get on the phone or or email, uh, and you know I ask them, look, what do you, what do you want to draw? What don't you want to draw? Uh, do you have any uh, particular requests for uh, for what I'm going to give you? Um, this is uh, you know this is a partnership in in every sense of the word. And frankly, the artist has the heavy lifting uh, mm-hmm. in, in the partnership. Um, you know, we're like a moving company, but the artist is the guy that gets the, you know, the heavy end of the sofa all the time. Um, so, look, I, you know, I'd be an idiot if I wasn't making sure that the artist was getting some stuff that makes him excited to go to the drawing board every morning. Right. Um, that just makes the book better. Uh and you know, and I think I've gotten fairly adept at looking at somebody's stuff and kind of getting a sense of what they want to do, what they're good at, what their you know if 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 their storytelling has an even or an odd sensibility in terms of the panel count on the page, 
Right. I think a lot of artists, you know, either break down to to um, an even number of panels on a page, which have uh, which has a certain rhythm to it, mm-hmm. and there's a little more static. Uh, and certain guys, uh, you know, there's a bit more chaos going on on the page, and those are the guys that you always end up with an odd number of panels on the page because it gives them the ability to to move things around. There's a greater variety of options in terms of laying out the page when there's an odd number of panels. So when you think about those those conversations that you're having with the artist, you know, getting to know them, figuring out their strengths, what they like, what they don't like, what's the strangest you know feedback you've gotten from your artist? Um, you know, the one thing it's not it's not strange per se, but I mean, the one thing I hear over and over again: What don't you want to draw horses? <laughs> Man, nobody wants to draw horses at all. Uh, uh, although I did, I did one job. I did a, I did a zealot miniseries for Wildstorm um, back in its, even its pre DC comics days, um, and a guy named Terry Shoemaker drew it, and I talked to him uh, beforehand, uh, and he was he was terrific. He's a really good artist, uh, and I said, you know, what what don't you want to draw? Horses. And, um, you know, that was kind of a pain in the ass because part of the story was set in feudal Japan. <laughs> uh, you know, haha, big surprise for me. Um, so I sat down to, you know, to write script and make sure that we didn't have any damn horses in it. Uh, and he called me back like two days later and he said, you know, I, I thought about it and I, I should learn how to draw horses better than I do now. So put a lot of horses in it. You know, so I did. And, you know, he just... He just nailed them all. He was he was terrific at it. One more question for you before we uh, you know wrap up here. And you know we keep referencing the uh, the CBR shelf life, and it's a great column, by the way. You know it's uh, for anyone who's interested in uh, visiting other websites than ours. Uh, you know check out Ron's CBR column because it's called Shelf Life. It's really great. I mean you know lots of people talk about it on Twitter. It's it's really well written. Um, always interesting. But one thing that uh, I thought was really interesting in particular was your commentary on writing Thor. Uh, you know, how you had always looked forward to writing Thor and it ended up being, uh, you know, it, it wasn't exact. it wasn't how you planned, you know. It was, Is, uh, yeah, it was not the, uh, the experience didn't live up to the anticipation, I guess, is the way to put it. How so? so well, go ahead. Um, yeah, go ahead. I, I said, uh, how so? Um, you know, it's it just wasn't it wasn't the right fit in terms of of the artist that was on the book uh, and the story that we ended up telling. Uh, it, you know, it, it's funny how, uh, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like when you get lost driving, you know, and you know, and your wife tells you to pull over and ask directions. And you're like, fuck that, I'm not doing it. Um, you know, because we're men, and that's not what we do. But you, all of that starts with one wrong turn. You know, and one wrong turn leads to another and to another and to another. And before too long, and before you ever realize it, you're completely headed in the other direction from where you wanted to be. And, and that, in some ways, was, was what the experience on Thor was like. Um, it started with uh, an artist that that was not my uh, that was not my pick and was not my ideal collaborator, uh, and who 
who a guy named Bruce Zick, who I ultimately turned out to um, be a, a, a background designer, a, a, a location designer for Disney animated films, and who was brilliant at that, but just didn't click with what we were doing on Thor, or what I wanted to do on Thor. Um, sometimes, you know, you just end up in a bad marriage creatively. Uh, where it's not anybody's fault, but it just doesn't work. I've, I've had, you know, a number of books in my career that just didn't click, uh, and thankfully I've had, I've had, uh, you know, more than that, that that have clicked. That have, you know, that I've had uh, collaborators like uh, Stephen Sayich and and Daryl Banks, you know, guys that have ended up uh, being not only a, an artistic collaborator, but uh, really tight friends with. Um, thankfully, that's happened to me much more often than, you know, you get into an ex- experience where something just doesn't work. Uh, but what I really drew from the experience is that sometimes maybe you shouldn't write the characters that you've got, um, you've got an attachment to. Uh, sometimes your uh, the fact that you're a fan of a character or or a a setting or whatever it happens to be doesn't allow you to approach the material uh, in as um, wide-eyed a fashion as as you should. Uh, I think ultimately that's why fan fiction is fan fiction and why people pay for the product of writers and artists uh, on comics or novels or whatever it happens to be. Uh, if you're, if you're too attached to, uh, to what you're working on, I don't think you do your best work. So you, uh, I, if I recall correctly, those first couple of issues of your, of your run on Thor, you wrote those with Jim Starlin, didn't you? Yeah. Initially that, that was the, that was going to be the deal was that they, they had, they had offered the book to Jim to write. Cause I was, I was writing silver surfer at that point. Um, they offered it to Jim. Jim wasn't terribly interested because Thor was just never a character that quite worked for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he came to me and said, look, you know, why don't we do this together for six months? And then, uh, you know, and then I'll exit stage left and you, you just keep going with it. Uh, and I thought that sounded great. I was looking for a, for a second monthly at the time. And, you know, I was a, I was a big Thor whore. That's, I mean, <laughs> uh, Simonson's run on Thor is still, to me, the my favorite run in comics. It is so um, sweet. Uh, and you know, if anybody out there hasn't purchased the Simonson omnibus uh, yet, you know, uh, get off the internet and go do that right now. Um, but uh, so that was the plan, and then we kind of got uh, we we got conjoined to this artist that was not the guy that. Jim wanted to work with and not the guy that I wanted to work with. And I think Jim left after two issues. Uh, he, he had had enough fairly early on and, and decided to bounce. And so, uh, uh, you know, and so I stayed for a year and it, it ultimately didn't, uh, didn't pan out. I think the way anybody wanted to, however, Marvel's reprinting like most of my year on Thor and a big, volume 
because we did a story called Blood and Thunder that was a crossover with Surfer and right. uh, and Jim's two Warlock books. So much to my surprise, uh, Marvel's reprinting a, a, a good chunk of this stuff, which I'm not quite sure how to react to. I, I'm, I haven't looked at any of these issues in years, so I'm kind of intrigued when this when this like 300 page uh, volume comes out to look at it and you know see if it's as wretched as I remember it or <laughs> see if it's as wretched as I remember it or if it's worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, hopefully sometime they'll reprint your damn uh, Silver Surfer stuff because I loved that stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, those comics were fantastic. And yeah, yeah not those not trade. comics, but the Silver <laughs> Surfer comics. <laughs> Not to be confused. You know, if I had to, if I had to pick one of the two, I, I suppose I'd like the the Surfer comics uh, reprinted more than the Thor stuff. Um, although, you know, I actually did a Thor annual during that period that that I like quite a bit um, because it was with a different artist and we were just telling the story in Asgard. Um, and I've actually got a I've, I've got a page from that story hanging on my office wall because it's just one of the coolest looking Thor shots that that. Uh, that I've come across. Um, so, you know, I, I worked on the book for a year. I've got one issue that I actually want people to look at. Excellent. With, yeah. Well, that would, I'm glad I asked. Cause I was very curious about how you felt about that and interesting stuff. So, well, it's, you know, it's a, you always go into the book, into a book, whatever the book is with the best of intentions. Uh, and with, you know, I, I don't think anybody, I mean, I would hope nobody, takes a book that says, well, shit, I'm not interested in this at all, but I guess I'll do it. Right. Um, you know, that's not, that's not reason enough to, to jump onto a project. Um, but sometimes, you know, you find out that it's not the right fit, but you don't know that until you're knee deep in it. Um, you know, that's the way at least that run on Thor was for me. Um, I did I did a year on uh, Superboy for DC, and it you know it turned out that that wasn't really a great fit either, um, because I I ultimately found that um, the artist that we ended up with on the book I thought was terrific, but he wasn't quite the right fit for Superboy, um, and I think because of that I just never never got into the book and and ultimately didn't really care about the main character that much. Um, and I think that's, you know, you have to care about the characters that you're writing about one way or the other. You, you know, like them, hate them. Uh, ultimately, you want to, you as the writer have to put those characters uh, through hell one way or another. Uh, and if, if you just are sort of lukewarm about the characters, um, you know, apathy is is the worst thing to approach a story with you know love or hate is is uh is okay i guess but 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 apathy uh like i don't really care what happens to these people if the creative team doesn't care then then the readers don't either um and that's really why i i only lasted on superboy for a year is because i i ultimately didn't um didn't care about uh his 16-year-old kid problems. Um, was it the haircut? So at the end of the problem? first year, I, had, I sat down and had a talk with the editor about 
look, this doesn't, just what we're doing here doesn't really work for me. I want to move Superboy to Smallville to live with the Kents, to go into the future with the Legion of Superheroes on occasion, and kind of, with a new character, retrace some of the, the classic Superboy stuff. Um, and the editor, who is actually no longer at DC, couldn't decide whether that was a direction that was okay or not, um, and couldn't suggest another direction. So, you know, ultimately, when you know what you want to do, but the people you're working for aren't sure where the book should go, it's always best to walk away from it. Um, and that's that's what I did on Superboy, and that's what I did on Thor, both. And it was the right decision both times. Um, it, it, Doing those also, you know, you learn by hard knocks. So doing those, having those two experiences kind of taught me that when you come into a book, you have to make it your own. Um, and so that's what I've done generally uh, since that time is, is either, you know, created, created a book that I'm working on or kind of made the book enough of my own that I felt comfortable with it. Like on Witchblade, moving her from the precinct house that she was with, losing the, the former supporting cast and building a new cast around her. Uh, that to me felt more like I was building a world that I was happy writing in and felt like there was a lot of stuff to mine rather than just simply showing up and playing with somebody else's toys. Which actually kind of brings us full circle back to Shinku and, you know, a character in a book that you're passionate about that's creator-owned, which is out on shelves right now. By the time you're listening to this, it should be at your comic shop. Run out, go buy it. It's a great book, beautiful book, well-written book, uh, highly recommended. And, you know, let's buy it so we can keep it going. Uh, That's the plan. Uh, Everybody that's on the book is, is committed to it for as long as we can do it and, and, you know, not be eating ramen noodles. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you, Ron, for coming out. No problem, guys. Happy to do it. Um, you know, this doesn't actually force me to leave my house, but it allows me to do something other than stare at a computer screen. So, Excellent. Uh, it's, uh, it's much appreciated. And, uh, I'm, I'm going to, I've already downloaded that NPR thing about area 51. I will be listening to that tomorrow. <laughs> I was a gape. I'm not. I don't usually have that reaction to stuff, but I just went. Soviet produced genetic aliens and Joseph Mengele. What? <laughs> and and actually, my second thought was, and and why didn't I think of this? You'd be on NPR right now. Yeah, it's. I, I I'll be. Uh, I'll be intrigued to see what you guys think because I was just. Uh, I was fascinated. Definitely let you know. Well, good chatting with you, man. And uh, you know, I'm sure we'll chat again sometime soon. Anytime, guys. I am uh, I am always appreciative of the support, and uh, I really appreciate you guys reading the stuff and, and pimping it to to your millions of listeners. Millions and millions of listeners. And growing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks a bunch, Ron. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Have a good night. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Podcast theme music graciously provided by Mark Andrew Pope. For more information, visit markandrewpope.com. Funny Books with Aaron and Polly is a production of ideologyofmadness.com. No Spider-Man clones were harmed in the production of this podcast.
alone. <laughs>